Good afternoon, everyone. We are continuing in the series looking at the book of James. And as I've said over the past couple of weeks, James is concerned about practical faith, putting our faith into action, taking our faith from a list of doctrines or something we believe with our heads or something we feel in our hearts to something that we live out in all areas of our life. And today, we are going to talk about an area that is very relevant in our everyday life, and that is conflict, conflict. Years ago, I was meeting with a friend. We were sitting at a coffee table, um, and he begins to tear up and share with me kind of a laundry list of relational uh, dysfunctions all the quarrels and all the fights that had characterized every relationship that he was in. And he began to weep right there over the cup of coffee. And I remember what he said so clearly. He said, fighting is all I know how to do. Fighting is all I know how to do. And there was this man, broken and exhausted, at the end of his rope, looking at the conflicts that were all around him. And he's like, I have no tools in my tool belt to deal with this. All I've been taught to do is fight. And so every relationship I get in, I pull the same play I've pulled all the other times before. And we, we hear that, and I think some of us can relate to the weariness that comes from the conflict that surrounds us. And it makes sense when we think about it. We are complicated people. You guys complicated people? <laughs> right? We, we are a complex mix of emotions and desires and disappointments and hopes. But all of us were created to be in relationship with other people. So we long for those relationships. But guess what? Other people are complicated too. They are a complex mixture of emotions and desires and disappointments and hopes. So when complicated me gets into a relationship with complicated you, at some point my desires and your desires are going to collide. And the question is, how do we deal with it? Most of us have learned conflict from our family of origins. So we have been trained in a certain way of doing conflict and that our family of origin mixes with our personality and that's how we handle conflict. Some of you are explosive. Others of you are very quiet, but you know how to be passive aggressive. Some of you are really loud because that's the way your parents did it. Others of you are very quiet, but you know how to hold a grudge. We give the silent treatment, we lecture, we blame, we attack. We use condescension, threatening gestures, name-calling, criticizing, sarcasm, complaining, denying, walking away, placating, avoiding, shouting, using extreme language, anger, rage, passive-aggressive behavior, lying, violence, and showing contempt. Right? We, we don't really know how to do conflict, but this is how we've been taught but what if there was a better way? What if we could understand the source of our conflicts? Where do they come from? And what if we could navigate the conflicts in a healthier way? 
Well, these are the questions and the issues that James is going to take a deep dive into in chapter four. So if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter four with me. This is what he says. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? A lot is packed into that passage. Last week, if you remember, we looked at the end, um, at the very end of last week's passage, James called us to be peacemakers and to be those who live in relational harmony. This week, James wants to continue the theme, but what he's going to do is draw out attention. There's a tension between who we want to be and who we're called to be, people of peace, people of relational health, people who deal with conflict in a healthy way. That's who we want to be. But James, ever practical, notices the tension. This might be who we want to be, but practically speaking, we can be fighters. People who bicker and grumble. People who argue and complain. People who give the silent treatment to pay someone back. And so James is saying, here's who you are and who you're called to be. Here is how you're acting. How do we bridge this gap? So from the text, I want to pull out two primary points. First, healthy conflict comes from understanding the conflict within. And second, healthy conflict comes from learning to walk in grace. So we're going to begin by looking at what James Uh, is describing as a war within ourselves. James tells us that our issues in relationships and our issues with God come down to a very simple question. What do you really want? What do you really want? If you were to cut open our conflicts, James says at the core of it is a war of desires. What do you actually want? Not what do you say you want to your friend or your partner or your children, but what do you really want at the core of who you are? And James says, when you begin to understand the desires and the longings 
that are driving you, you'll begin to understand what those things are that are underneath your conflicts. Because we're tempted in our conflicts to do, to find a different source, right? When we're in a moment of conflict, we say, What's, what is the problem here? And we think, you are, not me. I'm good. Like, if you weren't so annoying, so inconsiderate, so demanding, so unreasonable, we would be fine. But you are, and you always are. Therefore, we're in this conflict. But James is like, time out. You're, you cannot get off the hook that easily. What if the cause of the conflict is not out there? What if the cause of the conflict is in here? What do you really want? Until we can answer that question, before we can dive into the unmet desires in our own heart, we're never going to understand our fighting. So James says this, this war within is going to happen on two fronts. The first battlefront is conflicting desires. We see that in verses one through three. We have fights among us because we have conflicting desires within us. James says we have passions and we have desires. And these are really important words in the New Testament. We're not talking about good passions and good desires. Not all passion is wrong, not all desire is wrong. They're good. But what we have a lot of times are tangled up desires. We have twisted desires, right? We have selfish desires. And we bring those with us into a relationship. And all of a sudden, not only am I pursuing my unmet selfish desires, I expect you to be pursuing my unmet selfish desires. And when you don't, I'm angry. There's conflict. We might be fighting about the dishes and the way we're putting them in the dishwasher. But underneath that, there's an unmet expectation. James tells us that internal war almost always leads to external war. We fight because these longings need to be satisfied. A disordered heart leads to disordered relationships. We crave affection, attention, power, vindication, control, comfort, a, ha a hassle-free life. These desires... Maybe I don't say them. Maybe I've never even admitted to them myself. But these are the, the desires that actually drive me. I can't tell you how many times uh, I've been with my kids and they've done something and I've gotten upset at them and I've gotten mad and I'm, you know, I'm telling them all the things that they did wrong and then five minutes later, once I cool down, I realize that actually had nothing to do with them. That had everything to do with this other thing that was going on in my heart. It's Father's Day, hello. You guys with me? Or how many times with your wife or your spouse or a close friend, you've gotten into it about something and then five minutes later, you take a step back and be like, whoa, we're, not, we're talking about the dishes. We're not actually talking about the dishes. Man, there is something deep inside of me and I need to untangle that before we talk about the dishes. Uh, in, the, in the Harry Potter series, you might have remember in book one, there's an example, there's a, a mirror called the Mirror of Erised. You guys with me? Okay. Hello. Um, and Harry, he goes to the attic and he finds this mirror. Erised is desire spelled backwards. 
And so he unveils the mirror and he looks in it and he sees him standing with his parents. His parents had died years before. So for him, it was a desire, a picture of comfort and safety. So he's so pumped. He goes and gets his friend, Ron Weasley. They come up and he looks at the mirror and he sees himself as head boy. He's the athlete. He is the popular kid. And what does he see? He sees fame and he sees power. And so they love to come back and they love to look into the mirror because they're seeing something that's very attractive to them. And eventually Dumbledore, who's the headmaster, he goes and he pulls them aside and he says, many have wasted away in front of this mirror. He says, this mirror doesn't show things the way that they are. The mirror shows, quote, the deepest and most desperate desire of one's heart. I wonder if you were to look into that mirror, what would you see? What James is telling us is that our conflicts function like the mirror of Erised. We get below the surface, not, hey, what are we arguing about? You took my parking space. No, no, what are we really talking about? What are we really longing for? And our conflicts are a pursuit of those longings. Second, James tells us not only is there a battle within with conflicting desires, there is a battle within over divided allegiances. And this is the most intense part of the passage that we read, verse three through four. He says, listen, you ask God, you pray, but you don't get it because you ask wrongly because you want to spend it on your passions. I'm like, okay. Verse four, you adulterous people. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And we're like, oh, this is not going well. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And you're like, what is James talking about? I thought we were talking about conflict and now we're talking about prayer? Like, what's going on? But James is telling us the same issue you have with relational conflict with others is the issue you have in your relationship with God. These longings that are unmet, I'm putting them on my friends, but I'm also putting them on the God. So I come to God in prayer, praying for my selfish passions. And God, as our compassionate father, is like, no. No. I'm not going to give you the, the, the ability to run from me. No, I'd rather protect you and keep you near. You ask wrongly to spend it on you, your passions, you adulterous people. And we think that's kind of strong. Like that's, that's rather intense. And that's James' style, right? James, all throughout the letter, is very intense. But this is a, a metaphor we see all throughout the Bible. A common metaphor for our relationship with God is that God is like a husband and we are his bride. The church is described as the bride of Christ. So when God pursues us with his love, with his covenant, with his relationship, and we say, thank you, but no thanks. It's not just a polite refusal, it's actually spiritual adultery, James says. And so we get back to the question that we've been asking, what do you really want? What do you want? Do you really want to know and love God? Or if we're really honest, what we're actually looking for is something else and I actually would love God to help me get that other thing. 
We have a kind, a generous, a gracious God who delights in giving us good gifts when we ask him. He gives us more of his presence, more of his spirit, more of his power. But if we're honest, is that even what we want? Or do we really just want comfort or pleasure or success or power or control? What do we really want? Rich friendship with God, intimacy with him, or friendship with the world? If we try to have two masters, we should not be surprised if our divided hearts lead to divided relationships. Right, so James says, until you understand the battle going on inside your own heart, between your own desires, and between your divided allegiances, you're, you're never going to untangle your relationships. So understand the war within. Second, he says, we need to learn to walk in grace. And this is powerful. After that really intense passage we just read, what is the next verse? Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Verse 7, laundry list of commands here. Submit yourself, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, and begins to command. And what he's talking about is actually us breaking the cycle of conflict and stepping into the uh, cycle of grace. That there's a way for us to walk in humility and grace that actually leads to peace with God and others. So he says he gives more grace. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And he's going to show us this cycle. How do we walk in that? What does that actually look like? This is great news because where we thought we have messed up beyond repair, there's always more grace. If we are willing to humble ourselves, to admit it, to be honest, God is like, I'm ready to pour out my grace on you and for you to change the trajectory of your relationship. So I'm going to pour out my grace on you, and here is how I want you to walk. We can summarize it this way. Four steps. Four steps to walking in grace. First is expectation. He says, submit to God. Submit to God. He's talking about active allegiance. One scholar says that this is a readiness to await commands. So you think of a soldier who has enlisted in the army, and he's saying, here I am, command me. I am yours. I'm, I'm ready for action. I stand awaiting orders. So once we receive grace, the next step for us is just to say, expectations are reset. I'm yours. Here I am. When God's commands come, I've already made up my mind. The answer for me is yes. I'm not going to pick and choose. I'm not going to say, well, maybe, maybe not. I'm ready to say yes when you call. That's my expectation. Second, resistance. He says, resist the devil. And we say, well, okay, I've received grace, and I've, you know, I'm ready to follow. Shouldn't like, that prevent me from like, the devil's attacks or something? No, in fact, it puts you on the front lines. We must keep our feet firmly planted, refusing to lose hope, refusing to give up, 
even when our lives feel like they are under attack. We stand firm. Though the war has ultimately been won by Jesus, the battle still rages on. So we say, I am pushing back. I am standing firm. My feet are firmly set. I am not moving. As the country song puts it, if you're going through hell, keep going. It's profound, and that's biblical. If you're going through hell, keep going. Don't stop, resist, keep putting one foot in front of the other. As an old theologian, he gave, uh, an older theologian gave uh, this illustration. He says, if you are a ship captain, and you're sailing, you think of an old ship made of wood with the big mast and the big wooden wheel. He says, if you are facing opposition, if the waves or the wind or the storm is coming at you hard, you have to resist. You have to keep holding on. And if you are able to resist and hold on tight to the wheel, actually you will get to your destination faster. Because that storm, as you resist, is actually pushing you further along to your journey. But if you let go of the wheel and allow it to turn this way and that way for the storm to push you where it will, he said it's almost impossible for you to get back on course. And this is what we do in the life, our lives of faith. When the resistance comes, we've received the grace, we've said, yes, Lord, and then we face the resistance and we say, no, no, I'm standing firm. I'm holding on. I'm not letting go. I'm not losing heart. And God is like, this storm is going to be the wind in your sails. Third, we see not only do we have expectation, resistance, we also have intimacy. What an amazing promise we see here. So simple. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's that simple? Isn't it more complicated than that? I'm on the God of the universe. Draw near and he'll draw near to you? It's, it's profound. When we draw near to God, we find that he's not hiding. He's not lost. He's not missing. He's not distant. When we draw near to God, we find that the God of the universe himself is drawing near to us. And we're like, What? You're so much nearer than I thought you were. You're so much more active than I believed. So we draw near. We intentionally cultivate intimacy with God. As the monk Brother Lawrence famously put it, we must practice the presence of God. Practice being with God. Intimacy, nearness, quiet with our Father. You see, the first battle we fight as followers of Jesus is the fight to live near God, to develop intimacy with him. And what I've been convicted of for all of us, for myself, for my church, for this church, is if God is offering us this type of intimacy, this level of nearness, God, may we not settle for good religious duty. May we not settle for going to church and being good. May we not settle for just checking the 
boxes on the doctrinal page. How boring, how lame, how small. That's not going to sustain us through a difficult season, doing good religious stuff. But you know what will? Drawing near to God and God drawing near to you. Intimacy, nearness with the God of the universe. And often I talk to people and they say, well, pastor, you know, I just feel really far from God. I feel very distant from God. And I have a ton of compassion for that. But I say, okay, like, well, tell me about your relationship with him. What does it look like? And they're like, well, I mean, you know, it's like coming to church like once a month because I got softball and that's on Sunday mornings. But once the season's over, like, I'm there. Trust me, I'm so there. And, you know, I haven't really gotten involved in a community group or relationships with other believers because I'm so busy. And then the Bible reading is just, I don't know, I just don't understand all that stuff. And then I try to pray, but I'm just like really distracted by my phone. It's always beeping and dinging and ringing and, you know, all this stuff going on there. So that's just kind of what it looks like. And I'll be like, we're not legalists here. But honestly, what did you expect? Right? Like, what do we expect? We're just reaping what we've sown. Right, because God promises when we draw near to him, he's gonna draw near to us. He's not missing, he's not lost, he's not distant, he's near. So when we draw near, we find him. And listen, I'm not talking about those of you who are pursuing God and feeling like he's distant. That's another thing, that's real. I'm talking here about our lack of drawing near when God promises to draw near to us. We never drift into intimacy with God. We never drift into discipleship. We have to make an intentional plan, cultivate daily habits of reading God's word, praying, engaging in public worship like right now, living in fellowship with other Christians who are gonna point you to him, carving out those moments of quiet with God. Say, I I don't know what I'm doing this week. I got a lot of stuff happening this week, but the one thing I have to do is draw near to God. You know, I'm not going to be like Martha, who was running around doing all the things for Jesus. No, I want to be like Mary, sitting at Jesus' feet, being with him. Finally, the fourth step in the cycle of grace is repentance. Cleanse your hands, he says. Purify your hearts. And the sequence of these commands is really important. We often think, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to get my stuff together, and then I'm going to draw near to God. Because I have a feeling if I draw near to God as I am, this is not going to go so well. But the order in this verse and the order of Scripture is the opposite of that. It's come to God honestly as you are. And as we get to know God as we are, we begin to be transformed into his likeness. We begin to be convicted about the areas of our life that are not in line with him. And it's not duty to change our lives, it's delight. I want to be like Jesus. I want to live in the fullness of his love and of his life. So yeah, all the ways that I've been chasing the world, no thanks. I'm just going to cleanse my hands. I'm going to purify my heart out of love for Christ. Martin Luther famously said, all the Christian life is repentance. 
What does he mean? Does he mean as Christians, we walk around with these sour, gloomy, always, you know, saying, oh, woe is me. I'm terrible. I'm awful. This is horrible. Or I got to repent, repent, repent. That's not what he's saying. As Christians, we are honest about our inconsistencies. As Christians, we are honest about our brokenness and our sin. We can pull down the mask and say, here is what is really going on. And say, that's not really what I want. This is the truth about what's really going on in my life. I know it's not pretty. But I actually want to walk in repentance. No, the yes to Jesus. That's what repentance is. Literally, the word means turn. Right? I'm turning from this to, to Jesus. I'm turning from the way of the world to the way of Jesus. And that's a daily thing. That's a daily thing in my parenting, in my marriage, in my relationship. It's like, gosh, what am I doing? God, I don't know why I said that. That was so stupid. That was so selfish. That's not what I want. I'm turning to Jesus. Jesus, change me. And then as we walk in expectation and resistance and finally repentance, all of a sudden we find ourselves right in that posture that James says is right where God wants us with humility. And what does God give to the humble? Grace. And we are right back at the beginning. And on and on we go, walking in grace. And you might say, you know, that sounds good but I don't feel like I have the resources to do all those things that you're talking about. Well, I wonder if verse six might need to be our theme verse for a while. Maybe it needs to be my theme verse for a while, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. I realize how selfish my heart has been, but he gives more grace. I see how my allegiances are divided but he gives more grace. I'm trying to walk in grace, but I keep stumbling, but he gives more grace. I'm fighting the evil impulses in me and the power around me, and I keep failing, but he gives more grace. I think I'm gonna give up, but he gives more grace. I don't know if I can go on, but he gives more grace. I've not been prioritizing God at all, but he gives more grace. And this is the good news of the gospel today. We talk about conflict, we talk about relationship, we need to remember the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If we could summarize his message, it would be grace. He came to give us a gift that we do not deserve. It's what stands out about our faith. We don't earn it, we can't achieve it, doesn't matter how perfectly you do the cycle of grace. Doesn't matter. God pours out his grace on us in Christ, and when he does it, he rescues us from sin, and then he empowers us to live life with him in this world. So all the resources we need come from his grace. You have it if you are in Christ. You have everything that you need. So I wonder today what your response needs to be. Maybe you say, when you talk about conflict, amen. 
I got more conflicts right now than I can count. Maybe you need today just to bring those before God and say, hey, I've, I, need to, I need to untangle some of this stuff going on in my heart. Or maybe today you're saying, you know what? I, I don't feel like I've been prioritizing my relationship with God at all. And you need to today say, hey, I'm, I'm coming back to grace. I've been trying to do it myself. I've been running hard. But I, today I want to drink deeply of the well of God's grace that is available to me in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so gracious to us. But there is more grace. And God, we need it. I need it. My family needs it. This church needs it. We need your help. God, we want to be those who engage in healthy conflict. Agents of grace for one another. Humility. Graciousness. Kindness. That's the type of people we want to be. So God, would you transform our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.